0: Hi, I'm Marie Cox, and this is Space the Nation, a show about politics, science fiction, and intergenerational family dynamics.
1: And hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I believe that when it comes to the Free Navy, you do not, in fact, have to hand it to them.
0: (laughs) All right, uh, Dan, uh, we have a lot to cover since this is our season recap. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just jump right in? Get us started.
1: I'm going to preface this by saying most of the plot that we're going to discuss in some ways, there will be a before asteroid strikes Earth and after asteroid strikes Earth uh, components. But we're going to go into uh, different places and we're going to start with Amos on Earth. Uh, So Amos has left the Rossi to go back to Baltimore and settle the affairs of Lydia, who helped raise him. It is clear on this journey that the trip is unsettling him as he keeps trying to punch his feelings out. We learn that Amos's childhood was not just rough, but downright traumatic. He had to engage in sex work, and then when he grew out of that, uh, had to do muscle work for the sex work. And he also apparently killed someone named Amos Burton and took his identity because we learned that his childhood name was Timmy. We also meet Eric, local Baltimore crime lord uh, and old Amos drinking buddy, and learn that Amos promised never to return to Baltimore in return for his new identity. He takes care of Lydia's beau, who uh, in theory might have been displaced, and then feels compelled to visit Clarissa Mao uh, in the pit or the UN prison. Anna, I'm curious... Do you think in a different timeline, Amos and Eric might have actually switched roles? That that it would have been Eric who would have joined the Rossi and Amos who would have been the local Baltimore crime lord?
0: That's a really good question. I think in theory that's possible because I think that The Expanse does have a strong argument about... Again, we talk about nature versus nurture all the time with this season and the show, in fact... And so there's. I think you could make an argument that Eric, given a different environment, might have turned out to be a slightly different person. Because we do see seeds in him of kindness and generosity, right? I Mm -hmm. definitely think Amos could have been a crime lord.
1: Yes, I I think that's the better...
0: I mean, I I, I don't mean to be... uh, How do I put this?
1: Part of the issue is, of course, that Eric is a disabled person. Um, Mm -hmm. He has the use of only one arm. And I don't know whether or not... In the belt, you know, in, in...
0: I No, I think that would actually not be a problem.
1: You think so? Okay, yeah.
0: I think that it is quite possible that there's sort of technology that would help with that, number one. And I also think that belters tend to have injuries, and I think that they get around them, you know? I mean, it's dangerous likely, work yes. being a belter. It's basically mining, right? right? Uh, it is mining, I should say. <laughs> um, and we also just don't know, Eric as well so it's hard to say like what he would be I can say definitely Amos would have been a crime lord probably a pretty (laughs) vicious one yeah and I think that we actually see hints of Eric becoming more like Amos like towards the end you know like he seems to see the appeal of family an adopted family
1: and and he also demonstrates more adaptability. I mean, he you know his original impulse, which we'll talk about in a second, was to stay in Baltimore even after the right. asteroid hits. But he eventually he is actually persuaded that that is not the way to go, which <laughs> is not necessarily what you would have thought when you first met him. So yeah. I agree with you that that he might be more adaptable. But I also agree, Amos would have been a totally brutal crime lord.
0: Oh God, he'd be he'd be terrifying. And I think that the thing about Amos is that if he had gone that direction. I don't know if he even would have been able to make these kinds of decisions that Eric was able to make. And I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but Amos is presented as someone who was really damaged, yes, just very damaged. And so if he had not been able to kind of skip tracks, you know, and go in this entirely different direction, his ability to even make the kind of change that Eric did, I think would be somewhat limited.
1: I think we can agree on that.
0: All right, let's move on.
1: Let's move on. So uh, Amos is with Clarissa, who is pretty drugged up in the pit in order to repress her mods when one of Marco's asteroids uh, hits Earth and completely knocks out power in the pit and indeed knocks out the above ground structure of the pit. After climbing their way out of the prison, uh, Amos and Peaches make their way back to Baltimore with Amos continuing to feel, I would say, unmoored and tribal with a tribe of two. But they do succeed in reconnecting with Eric um, and persuade him and his crew to head to the resort island of Winnipesaukee, where they hotwire shuttle and barely escape to Luna with Eric and a lot of the off-season help in Winnipesaukee in the uh, the shuttle. I would say at the end of the season, Amos seems like he is in a much better emotional place than he was at the start and also manages to expand his Rossi tribe by uh, essentially convincing uh, Holden to have Clarissa join them. Anna, were you expecting Clarissa to play such a large role this season? So as someone who's not a reader of the books, I was not aware that she was going to pop up again. And so in some ways it was, I actually thought it was a pleasant surprise. And I, I thought Nadine Nicole did a, a great job with the role. What do you think her function is going to be in season six?
0: I think that she's going to be folded in with the Rossi if they follow the arc of the books. I, I believe, uh, you know, the Rossi crew um, is an expansive family, as it were. <laughs> oh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, you know, Holden's generosity um, of spirit is one of the things that propels both the plot and the Rossi. I think, actually, the Winnipesaukee arc was low-key one of my favorites of the season, though m- maybe not important to the series as a whole. And I would actually separate... Well, no, I'll say the whole arc of that. The, the Amos' whole arc, although of that arc... I liked the Wimpisaki part especially. I think Eric, uh, Jacob Mandel, who played Eric, who is disabled, um, like the character, I know the show really wanted to sort of stick with its values in casting a disabled actor to play a disabled character. Mm -hmm. And that is awesome. Yes. Uh, And I just think he did a great job with a character that could have been a caricature. You know, I mean, this is true of so many minor characters in The Expanse, and Mm -hmm. uh, his turn was believable, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, that doesn't always happen. I also really liked Clarissa becoming like the dove, even though she's literally. Engineered. The most effective hawk in
1: history. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Uh, the most brutal hawk. No, no. I, that was so. You, you liked. Uh, you like Eric? As I said, for me, it was Nadine Nicole as, as Clarissa. I really. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite part of the Amos arc was actually the episode where they kill, frankly, the survivalist and manage to take over his house and the supplies. And I was genuinely surprised by the way that episode ends, where Clarissa says, "This, what we just did, is actually wrong." And we need to be better because I think that was also the moment where Amos realized how much he had relied on Naomi and Holden to be his conscience. And in some ways, I think the Winnipesaukee segment is is Clarissa stepping into that role mm-hmm. um, because Amos is clearly inclined to kick out the you know the help, and and he he seems to be naturally sort of reverting to Eric mode. In some ways, like, you know how when whenever, when you're an adult and you go home to your family, you revert to your, yeah. your college-age persona, which is not always the best? Right. I think that was Amos reverting, and, and Clarissa wouldn't let him. And I think in that way, the things you liked about the Winnipesaukee arc, I think, emerge in that, in the earlier parts of the, the season. Yeah. So that's what I liked about that.
0: Yeah, the survivalist murder is weirdly and incredibly satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> not the actual murder, but right. like it is a linchpin of the whole um, arc. And also I think the scene with just Amos and Clarissa in the cabin in the aftermath is some really superb acting and just shows how much the show can do with very little, you Mm -hmm. know, it's a show about space wars and battles and big alien, you know, adventures, but it's also really about those small moments. Yeah. I want to add just one last thing, which I am, I am intrigued by the, progress or lack of progress made in terms of prisons in the future Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and I think maybe the thing we have to just come to terms with is prisons are cruel like you just can't build a prison and have it be anything but that which is why we shouldn't have them but let's move on
1: Let's move on. We go from uh, Amos on Earth to Queen Avasarala on Luna. I'm just going to call her Queen Avasarala because that's that she's my queen. She is on Luna. She is still getting uh, intriguing intel from Bobby about uh, Martian stealth tech being sold to Belters. She's drinking with Amos, and she is clearly being marginalized by current UN Secretary General Nancy Gao. Her daughter wants her to give up on politics. She is reluctant to do that uh, and is somewhat estranged from her husband, Arjun. She grows convinced that Marco is planning on launching stealth tech asteroids toward Earth, uh, but is stonewalled by Gao's staff. She finally manages to reach Gao, just as the asteroids are falling to Earth, which successfully allows for the retasking um, of Earth's defenses to target the asteroids. But it is nonetheless nonetheless too late uh, to stop another asteroid from hitting Earth and essentially destroying Nancy Gao and most of the UN leadership, a successful decapitation strike because they were in the air, very close to where the asteroid was hit. So, Ana, while you could argue that Nancy Gao should have listened to Ava Sarala earlier, um, I can't blame her for trying to marginalize her former political opponent. This is normally the way politics works, and I was just sort of curious whether you agreed with me on that.
0: Well... I would say that it's a realistic portrayal of how politics works, for sure. But as I said in uh, the podcast we did immediately after that episode, I do wonder if Monica is going to write the Looming Tower book (laughs) about this event. Uh, The Looming Tower, being Lawrence Wright's amazing kind of backstory to 9-11, laying out the ways that we might have seen it coming. And I wonder if there is a looming tower narrative sort of behind Marco. I mean, in fact, we know there is because, yeah. because Avasarela saw it. Right. So there were errors in intelligence. There were errors in judgment, but they were realistic errors in judgment. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think that, um, I mean, I, I think Nancy Gao was, was a fully realized character. I appreciated that. Again, that's something The Expanse does really well. I was hoping almost for a little more fight about, who would take over after her? Instead, it was an incredibly smooth transition to our uh, Secretary of Transportation. Right? Yes, so it was the
1: Secretary of Transportation. Yes, yes,
0: or Minister. I don't know work. if yeah. that's realistic. I think <laughs>
1: that's an interesting question, which we will we will talk about in a
0: second. The one thing
1: I will say is that, I, I, and you know, partially, I understand that this is just the nature of the way that things were plotted out. But in some ways, this speaks to something that that. The way in which the first episode of the season I found in some ways a very well-executed misdirection, which is that there are reasons to think after particularly the first episode that things are trending in a positive direction for a mm-hmm. lot of the, the the system, right? You know, Nancy Gao was in some ways correct to say, look... We should send people through the rings. This is actually good for Earth. It's good for the people who go through the rings. It generates, you know, reduces homelessness, increases employment. And similarly for the belters, this is economically good for them. And, you know, as we recall, you know, there are belters coming to Luna because there are jobs now on Luna. So, you know, as the person who studies political economy, I am frustrated by the fact that there seemed to be a promising trajectory that was largely based on, on wise policy decisions that nonetheless... (laughs) <laughs> do not work out at all, uh, thanks to uh, Marco, and Aris, uh, Marco and the Martians, as it were. But but I grant you that uh, Avicerala was right on this, and, and it, obviously it is unfortunate that Nancy didn't listen to her sooner. But that said, as you say, this is part of standard politics. New leaders tend to marginalize old leaders. That is normally the way it works. And there are very good reasons, by the way, for why that works in terms of who is running things politically, in terms of political legitimacy. But let us uh, move on to the post-asteroid uh, strike on Earth. There is a new secretary general, as Anna said, uh, who is David Pastor, the former secretary of transportation. Pastor asks Avasarala to serve in his cabinet. She agrees. And Pastor, uh, in a very fiery speech, uh, promises vengeance for Earth. Avasarala warns uh, against treating all belters as the enemy. Pastor and the military, particular Admiral Delgado, who is one of Avasarala's uh, few allies, uh, disagree, and they decide to destroy Palace Station after video Merges of those belters cheering on Marco. Avicerala decides to resign in protest because Pastor decides to wants to expand essentially the Palace Initiative, triggering a wave of resignations along with Avicerala and the fall of David Pastor. Avicerala is subsequently asked by the cabinet to become Secretary General again. She insists that not all belters are the enemy and she tries to communicate that message to the belt, but that message might be tougher to maintain once word gets out that the United Nations has lost control of the Ring Gates a part of Avasarala's arc was trying to get into the mindset of other actors. Do you think she will be able to do that with either Marco or the Martian separatists?
0: I think so. And this question leads to one of the themes I want to talk about later when we do themes. But for now, I'll just point out that there is a huge irony in the way that Avasarala is mostly incredibly capable in getting to the mindset of other actors especially her enemies right and yet she has these blocks with her own family Hmm. like she has these incredibly tense and somewhat stiff relationships with both her husband and her daughter and has trouble connecting to them
1: yeah actually a low-key great acting moment this season was ava sarala was was shora Agdashlu her phone, like basically the voicemail she left with Arjun, you know, trying to reconnect with him about how like, oh, it's a new semester. That must be exciting and so on and so forth. And, you know, yeah, that was. I thought that was extremely lovely.
0: And the other low-key best moment for her for me was when she f- sort of flicks his name mm. onto the memorial wall, yeah. basically. Um Uh, on luna which i believe you know very consciously all these memorials kind of look alike but for americans it's hard to look at that and not imagine 9-11 yeah and i just felt the weight of that grief uh, really powerfully um, in that moment Uh, dan shall we move on
1: yes we are now going from luna to mars So in this season, Alex uh, is coming home to try to patch things up with his family. It is clear his family does not want to patch things up with him, and therefore he goes to compadres, of course, as all good Martians do, and meets up with Bobby, who tells him uh, after some truculence about the black market Mars tech. Alex is a good Martian and therefore cannot believe that senior MCRN officers uh, would actually be involved. He decides to pay a visit to the Martian War College to visit Admiral Sovater, but his very presence creates a bit of a stir. One of Sovater's adjutants, Lieutenant Babbage, tries to matahari him with some success, but Bobby manages to save Alex from an assassination attempt. They decide to track Babbage's ship, uh, the Bar Keith, and discover that the decommissioned Martian ships are now Marco's Free Navy, in fact. The Free Navy spots them and tries to destroy them, but fail. Alex and Bobby manage to make contact with Holden and decide to try to rescue uh, Naomi, who is marooned on the Chetsumoka at this point. They pull some serious Gs to get there, and Bobby does rescue Naomi just in time as her air is running out, but at a cost because Alex, in the end, strokes out from all the high G and rest in pace Alex. Anna, we left Mars in a little bit of a hurry. Uh, we saw a fair amount of it in the first half of the season, and then we don't see it again. And I'll be honest, I kind of wanted to know a little more about what was going on there. Is it like Earth, where it's just dying, but in a different way?
0: I was not satisfied with this plot arc. Again, okay, posit. love the season, love the show. I think it does stand out when they... When they neglect to capitalize on potential plot lines, let's say. Because I really loved the manic. Pixie Crime Girl plot. Yeah. Oh, from season. from season
1: four. Yes, the manic Pixie Crime uh, Girl was awesome. Yes.
0: Right, and that that plot had the feel of like a thriller or a mystery, right? Like you really you sh- you know, but Bobby unraveled something, yeah. and you saw her unraveling it. And the show's ability to kind of dip into genre like goes back to the first season where we had literally a private detective. Well, actually, he was. Officially a detective and then kind of a private detective, um, but they they used the structure of a murder mystery almost. Right. It right? feels
1: like a, it feels film noirish. Yes.
0: Yeah. The hat, and I the love hat makes that. it
1: noirish. Yes.
0: Right. And I loved that. Um, of course, that's what drew me into the entire series. So I feel like there was so much more that could have been done in terms of like sleuthing out what was going on on Mars, and that's a separate question, kind of from what's happening on Mars as a whole. But again, I'll point to manic pixie crime girl as a way that they gave us a window into the devolution of Mars Mm -hmm. without making it too obvious and showed us the conditions, for instance, that would cause military people to decide to break off, right? Because as that culture is getting more and more, I guess probably the military would think of it as hedonistic, (laughs) you know, and like undisciplined. Of course, there's going to be this faction in the military that really desires the structure and meaning that came with being a Martian, you know, before the ring gates opened. So I think that there was more that could have been done there, both in terms of theme and like having a more exciting plot line. That said, um, Bobby and Alex made a great team and it was Mm -hmm. fun to follow them on their adventures. They had a great kind of like repartee, yes. let's say, with Bobby getting the best of Alex most of the time. <laughs> yeah, and, it so was another, <laughs> and it was another example of the way that the show highlights uh, platonic friendships between men and women, mm-hmm. um, which is, you don't realize how rare that is in popular culture until you see it done over and over again in one series, I feel like.
1: And done well in a convincing way. Like, yeah. you don't think they're suddenly going to start kissing for some reason. Um, right, although I, right. I confess, and I, I think you agree with me on this, I felt bad for uh, Lieutenant Babbage, who in the end dies, uh, right. you know, in the last episode, clearly, uh, from trying to pass through the ring gates. Because I really actually kind of like the Mata Hari episode <laughs> a little bit. Uh, it was it was entertaining.
0: Oh, and I should add just it's it's not this plot line, but in terms of romantic tension, the most romantic tension on the show is between Amos and Vasarala, which, <laughs> <laughs> which let's face it, like has zero percent chance of actually, you know, being consummated in any way. But I think that's the one that's the only place where I feel like it's a real intentional like kind of playfulness in flirting. And yeah, I, do I think, think that, it's no. I one agree way. with you.
1: Like, there's really no, no. I'm, I'm th- particularly this season. I don't think there was any flirtatious banter in any way whatsoever outside of that. For, like that one exchange between West Chatham and Shahrukh Dushlu um
0: but it, but that's but they have you know the receipts for that like that goes back Yes. oh no,
1: no and that's entirely appropriate like, yeah no no, no. but <laughs> by the way I, I think we're both in the same page which is we're not against flirtatious banter no, no, it's no, just no, flirtatious no, no. banter has to be grounded in character it's not just like you throw it in there for the hell of it
0: i mean clearly amos has some mommy issues too so it all <laughs> kind of makes sense yes. really
1: it actually yes it is entirely consistent with amos and i totally could see where christian would would go along with
0: well it. he's hot yeah. i mean like yeah <laughs> And I think she would make a great cougar now that she's single. And, you know, not to be too callous about it. Like I can see her play in the field. You know.
1: Oh man. Okay. That'll right. be some interesting season six plot lines if that if that's where they go forward. <laughs>
0: Let's go to deep space, Dan.
1: Let us move to the world of the belt, and we're going to start with my favorite Kamina Drummer. Kamina, as you recall from the end of season four, had left Medina Station. She is now large and in charge of her own belter faction, which includes a norm of polyamory. But I would say that while Drummer is uh, loving a lot of people, she seems particularly drawn to Oksana. Their faction discovers Ashford's old ship uh, and, more importantly, his old log containing his last conversation with Marco, which makes it clear what Marco's plans really are. Drummer forwards the message to uh, her old friend Fred Johnson. After Marco's big move against both the protomolecule and against Earth, Drummer decides to accept an invitation from Marco to join the Free Navy after some deliberations with her faction in which they all basically decide they don't really have a choice. This requires, among other things, an exchange of crew members. So Serge gets to go um, on the Pella and uh, Corral joins uh, Drummer on her ship. Uh, Drummer's crew is increasingly repulsed. By scavenging old belter ships, and Drummer is increasingly pissed off by Karral, uh, among other things, because she keeps trash talking Naomi. Oksana eventually tells Drummer that Naomi might be alive. Karral had said that she was dead, but Oksana also warns Drummer not to cross Marco or disobey his orders. They are ordered by Marco to engage and destroy the Rossi along with a few free other Free Navy ships, but at the last minute, Drummer fires her missiles um, at the Free Navy ships instead of the Rossi and her. Crew also kills Corral. Marco, in retaliation, kills Surge, and the drummer faction splits in half. With Oxana taking about half the crew and half the ships uh, away, Anna, a lot was made of the sort of polyamory of the the Belter life, and and the idea that this was sort of going to be creating a sort of new introduction to sort of Belter culture. I'm going to confess I found it a little bit unconvincing um, because, among other things, you wind up seeing Drummer focusing completely on Oksana. I guess my question is, do you think the show did that sort of aspect of Belter life justice?
0: No, no, I don't think they did. I think it's better explored in the books. Um, I wonder if one limitation is the reluctance to show sex scenes which would be kind of important, not because sex, well, sex is important, but not mm-hmm. just because to show sex scenes, but to show the communal nature of the relationships. Like, hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. even if it's just, you know, not like multiple people at once, but like in the book, it's very clear that people kind of like, there's no one partner, right? right? Like th- there may be a fate, there may be a, a one that's more than the others, but it is, it is genuinely like a group of people who are in love with each other, Mm -hmm. you know, not with just a single person and these other people kind of come along. Mm -hmm. And in the in the books especially, you know, it's posited as a way to deal with the loneliness of space travel. Hmm. Uh in the in the ways that um each belter ship has to be its own unit. Like, you know, they they don't have the kind of centralized infrastructure to be able to go and refill someplace for sure right like there's no like home base for these people and i just think we you know we didn't get enough development of the characters yeah. that are in that family and it we've talked so much about how great the expanse is in most of the situations giving all these minor characters ways to shine make the yeah ways to shine and also ways to define them mm-hmm. from each other and i'll confess the only person i could tell you the name of would be xana
1: yeah, like, that was... The same. I mean, I there's was... a
0: couple others, like, I, I mean, but I can't, actually, I can't name them off the top of my head, because mm-hmm. they're just not given much to do. Right. And that's a problem for both, you know, the polyamory aspect of it, and also just, like, how much we care. Like, right. when the crew breaks up, like, it's just sort of in a, like, purely analytical way that I kind of recognize, oh, that's bad. But... But you don't feel any loss.
1: You don't feel any sense of loss because you don't you you know I agree that that basically you know this might have been one of the things that I admire the expanse for is that it is juggling a lot of plot and a lot yeah. of characters across multiple Settings And so this is not an easy thing to do. But I think this is an area where it just wasn't quite as compelling as even, let's say, like, you know, the dynamics on the Pella, for example, where mm-hmm. there are much stronger character Like, you know, you feel what Sin is thinking and what Karal is thinking and so on and so forth. It just didn't quite ring true as much on, on in the drummer side of the arc.
0: And, and I don't think it would have been very difficult for them to do that. I mean, they maybe could have made it a slightly smaller crew yeah. or something. Um, but as it is, I do feel like there was a real missed opportunity here, um, as in the Mars plot line, to kind of give a more vivid picture of a culture, right? So, I don't know. I mean, I, I, and I wonder if time is running out for that kind of picture. I felt in general this season, we only saw the Free Navy, really. Yes. Like we didn't really see Belter culture. No, and, and- this was,
1: uh, you know, we, I was going to talk about this later, but this is in some ways one of the things I kind of was frustrated by with the season was, and I understand why they did this. And again, God knows Marco makes good television and Keon Alexander just kills that role. But I kind of wanted to know what was going on in the rest of the OPA and what was going on in terms of the rest of the belt. Um, and it was occasionally it would have made it
0: more powerful when they decide to to get a wider and more diverse uh, picture of Belter culture would have made the decision whether or not to take on Belters as an enemy mm-hmm. would have given that decision more weight because yeah. all we're really shown is a couple of ambivalent Belters mm-hmm. and then the cheering. Right, and so in the George W. Bush, the people that took down these towers will hear from you <laughs> moment. Um, it, it, I mean, we can recognize that as being kind of jingoistic, but it doesn't have like the ominous tone that some of us felt almost immediately when the United States decided to declare war on, quote unquote, terrorism. So I don't know. Yeah, it was it was a it was a, a miss, a rare miss. All right, Dan, I think we have to finish up our tour.
1: Okay, we're going to go with the rest of the Rossi crew as well as uh, Marco and the Martians. So uh, Naomi leaves Tycho to find Philip on Palace Station, uh, leaving Holden in charge of the Rossi's repairs as well as, you know, sort of like bonding with uh, both Fred Johnson and his second in command Bull. Naomi finds Philip, but their reunion is super awkward. And in the end, uh, Philip, along with uh, his crew of Sin and Corral, decide to kidnap her and take her back to Marco. Uh, On the Free Navy. Um, It would be safe to say that reunion goes badly uh, in no small part because Marco and Philip kill millions on Earth uh, with his stealth tech asteroids. Holden, meanwhile, discovers that Monica, the reporter, has had some good intel on the protomolecule, indeed involving, among other things, the kidnapping of one of the protomolecule uh, scientists. Um, But then Monica herself is kidnapped. Holden and Fred manage to successfully free Monica, and they think they have laid a trap for her kidnappers. But in a surprise twist, Fred Johnson is assassinated by one of his employees, Sakai, and an autonomous robot steals the OPA's uh, protomolecule sample just as the asteroids strike Earth. Marco announces the existence of the free navy which essentially exists of decommissioned mcrn ships um and a fundamental shift in the distribution of power and i said this before uh but but again i i do think the opa got somewhat shortchanged in this on the other hand fred seems kind of chill and relaxed during the first part of the season so did he have this coming to him
0: Exactly. How do you mean that? I'm curious.
1: So what I mean by this is, of course, he did not deserve this. I, I want right, to be very right. clear about that. But might it be that Fred, Fred, much like Nancy Gao, believed oh, a the, looming
0: tower problem.
1: Right. Basically, they believed that the the future was in a trajectory that was favorable to them. So we remember that you mm-hmm. know Fred was talking about how yeah, I've got the proto molecule, but I'm not going to use it. The point is, is that we want to build our navy, and once we've got that, it'll be fine. You know, Tycho is thriving. Felters are doing well. You know, the, the ring gates will be uh, important. And, and he seems less concerned with threat, I guess, would be the way to put it. And so this is where, you know, it's it sort of a failure of threat perception kind of leads him to, unfortunately, his demise.
0: I think that that is not so much hubris as um, an artifact of him being an earther. Hmm. Because I think Fred fundamentally misunderstands the depth of resentment and hatred that some belters have for inners. Because he himself is an inner, right? right? And he has gone to war against other inners. Um, He is the strongest advocate belters have uh, in leadership, let's say except perhaps Marco. But, he, but Fred Johnson always had a vision. He had a vision of an independent belter nation. He mm-hmm. had a vision for them having equal footing to all others. And, but I think that because he's an earther, again, like he doesn't know what systemic oppression feels like. I mean, in a way, it's a kind of commentary on, of course, in this series, Fred Johnson is a black man. Mm -hmm. but I think in some ways his inability to understand the systemic oppression and and the ramifications of generational oppression, you find a parallel to that in the ways that white liberals try to or, or fail in understanding the historic oppression of black people. I would be interested to know in this future if, for instance, there have been reparations.
1: That's like, an interesting question, and I, I would say to, to reaffirm your point. I think one of the, and again, this is a well-executed arc by the Expanse. Was even after when, when Fred is assassinated, there is the one element of the sort of interrogation of Sakai that I think is genuinely revealing. Is Sakai's attitudes about Fred, um, where he makes it, she makes it extremely clear that you know she 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 kind of liked Fred, but nonetheless viewed him as an Earther rather than as actually part of the Belt. And again, it's, it goes back to these questions about the politics of identity.
0: And and I want to say that I think that The Expanse is being honest yeah. in the ways that he doesn't understand. I think that that is a true thing, that if you have not experienced the same kind of systemic oppression that exists over generations, and there's trauma mm-hmm. over generations, I wonder it's interesting to think of the choice to, to cast a black man in that role, because I wonder if by 300 years from now, that's why I sort of mentioned reparations, I wonder what a black earthers relationship to blackness would be
1: in that sense i don't think there's much discussion of race in the expanse i mean there yeah. is in terms there is there is in terms of like belters versus martians versus yeah. earthers but The idea of like minorities within these, you know, that's, that's, or I guess within belters in terms of factions that comes up and to a lesser extent with Mars in terms of like people coming from South Asia as opposed to Texas or what have you. Although really there, it's more of a blending, but yeah, it's, it's not really discussed, which is fine. I don't necessarily, I mean, I think.
0: I mean, they have, you know, the literal different kind of human that the belters are kind of stand in, I think, for minority race. Mm Mm-hmm but yeah there is very little engagement with like how you and i and most people on earth at this point think of race
1: Okay, let us move on uh, after the execution of both the theft of the protomolecule and the bombing of Earth. Uh, Holden and Bull decide to pursue the Zemea, the ship transporting the protomolecule, back to the Free Navy. But just before they fire up their drive in the Rossi, uh, Naomi manages to club Sin and tell Holden uh, over communications that uh, the ship is rigged to blow. They debug the Rossi, pursue and destroy the Zemea, and then burn really hard to try to find uh, Naomi's ship. Naomi, meanwhile, failing in her efforts to create a bond with Philip, I think that is a safe assumption, goes into hard vacuum uh, to avoid both Philip and Marco and to board the Chetsamoka just before Marco sends it on its merry way as bait for Holden. Naomi manages, through both wit and will, to alter the automated message that the Chetsamoka is sending out. Holden decides to engage in a suicide run of Marco's Free Navy ships and to keep them occupied while Alex and Bobby rescue Naomi. Drummer successfully manages to save Holden. He then reunites with Naomi, and they go to Luna and clearly decide to side with Avasarala in the brewing conflict. Marco is extremely frustrated at losing the Rossi, but does complete his grand plan by gaining control of the system's ring gates in return for letting the Martians' uh, separatists claim hegemony in Laconia. Um, I thought Holden, who has been the protagonist throughout you know, the first four seasons of this show was in some ways pretty marginalized this season up until the final episode and the sort of big space battle, which actually made me glad that he wound up taking center stage. Would you agree?
0: I think it's fine to give Holden a rest. (laughs) I I really do. Um, You know... He is the protagonist for like most of the series and most of the books. Giving everyone else a chance to take center stage, I think, is healthy for the plot Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps healthy for Holden. We actually talked about this a little bit, which is that in this season, Holden has the least amount of power and influence that he's ever had. Hmm he is not powerless but he he can't really do much for naomi he can't do much for his friends i mean in the end he's able to do the suicide run um or what might as well be right a suicide run but it's
1: telling that that is his choice that that his choice is not he can do other things or destroy you know i mean yeah that in the end his 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 choice is to sacrifice himself with the idea that that would allow naomi to live
0: Exactly. I want to now that we've done kind of a plot wrap up, I would like to nominate a series MVP. Mm -hmm. um, And that is Marco. He was the most fun of any character. And I say this as a huge West Chatham fan, as everyone knows, and seeing we did not touch on the fact that you get to see him in his undies this season. (laughs) More of that, please. But I would maybe see, like to see Marco in his undies. I bet that's that's not bad. Um, not a bad view. Um, but it, we talked <laughs> about Keon Alexander. He seems to be having a blast yes. um, playing that character. Yes. And you know, I, as I've said, I love to hate him. He's <laughs> he, he's in it. he has so much charisma. Like that's the trick. right? The man is
1: a charismatic dick. As I, I think I say, I've said multiple times in this podcast. It is. I have to say, the thing about watching Keon Alexander in that performance is. You simultaneously are repulsed by him, but can also see why people follow him, and in some ways, that's the the crux of of his character. Um, and I will will absolutely give him full marks uh, for that. He is possibly the best villain on television right now. You know, I think that would be the way the, the way to put it. And and by best villain, I don't mean like you know like cartoonish. He's he's simultaneously a villain, but someone that you can kind of see where they're coming from. the The moment I think where he genuinely surprised me the most this season was where it was very clear that he is angry at Naomi for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that Naomi is withholden. And I think one of the low-key interesting sort of plots in this season was the idea that Marco recognizes the symbolic power of the Rossi and the Rossi crew as a threat to what he wants the system to look like, in particular what, belt, what he wants the belt to look like.
0: And I would say I think one of the most interesting and powerful kind of low key moments uh, for marco is the idea that the thing that really upsets him I agree that she's with holden yep. infuriates him but that she left yeah you mean but the first so sorry the, do you mean, you mean, the, mean the first she, time the, or the, the second
1: time oh,
0: <laughs> i guess both but yes. the, the first time is the one that's a really powerful moment between them yes. um and and more props to both of those actors dominique tipper and kian alexander mm-hmm. in the moment where you can see in marco his, I don't believe Marco necessarily feels sadness. <laughs> um, I think he's a pathological narcissist. Right. Um, but he can feel
1: hurt. He feels rejection. That's certainly yeah. The he case. feels
0: rejection and yeah. hurt. Yeah. And you can see the hurt that it caused him. Yes, and the hurt I think was genuine.
1: That's the other so, thing. Yeah. Now, again, again, props to Cian Alexander because it was a, it was a rare moment where you see an, an emotion beyond narcissism in terms of what he does. And so that w- I agree with you on that.
0: So is he also your season MVP?
1: I think, yeah, I think there's no... Let me put it this way. In in terms of, to use Emmy categories, he is without question, yeah, the MVP. If there was a supporting MVP, I think I would have given it to Nadine Nicole, plays Clarissa Mao. Just because I... All of, again, the performances are, t- are across the board top-notch. The thing I liked about her performance in particular was she had to do a couple of things, and she did all of them extremely well. You know, you first see her very heavily drugged in order to suppress the her mods and i thought she did a a really good job in that particular performance she also in some ways has to serve as amos's conscience and that is significant but really actually what i liked about her because there wasn't a lot of that this season she actually did a great job with the humor she was given some of the funniest lines and they weren't like you know, like like they weren't obvious funny lines. It was her delivery um, when she explains to Eric that she was surfing in prison or even just when she says hi to Holden at the very, you know, at the close to the end of the season. I, I really did laugh out loud at those moments.
0: I think I have to agree with you as far as best supporting MVP. I'd love to give it to Eric, but I think his arc isn't quite fully realized in a way that I can give it to him the other whereas clarissa really yeah that, that's the other i think
1: shout out i would give there. is to uh the actor josiah chase owens who plays philip this is a slightly different thing but first of all again the casting is perfect philip really as we have said before philip does really look like he would be a child of dominique tipper and, and keon alexander but also in some ways he his role this season was tricky because he i think while he has to emote some, you sort of had to figure out how he's trying to figure out what he thinks about both Naomi and his relationship with with Marco. And I, I'm still not entirely sure what he thinks about these things at the end of the season
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think there is a a very much earned confusion. With him, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's not just like a lack of a decision making by the the writers or a lack of decision making by the actor, yeah, and um, which can some you, you that sometimes looks like confusion in a character, right? <laughs> I think it's it's a genuine amb- ambivalence is better th- word than confusion, yeah. I, uh, or that's ambiguity, it yeah. It's ambivalent and, ambiguity. There's genuine ambiguity, real and earned ambiguity.
1: And the other thing I would say is that like, despite the fact that like asteroids hit Earth, you know, there was massive. You know, carnage in this uh, this season. The single like moment that caused me the gasp the most was when he slapped Naomi. That was a legitimately shocking moment that I was not expecting. And in retrospect, I I get, but like it was it was extremely well executed. And it's a credit to everyone that it had that effect when I watched it.
0: Yeah, that was the moment of violence that had the biggest effect emotionally. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's up there with um, Avacarella flicking arjun's name right um in terms of impact yeah i i also gasped at that moment it it, surprising and yet also in character yes exactly all right we have finished our tour of the galaxy we have covered all the plot lines so now i must ask the question that i'm sure listeners are 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 waiting for with bated breath dan anna was there ir in this season
1: Ana, I'm glad you asked, and I put in my notes, there was a fuck ton of IR this season. And to, to go over all of it would mean that this podcast would go multiple hours, and I don't think anyone really needs that. But if I had to pick one element out, it was about power transition and its implications. So there is a, a literature in international relations about power transition theory, about when one great power sort of rises to challenge another great power. And we've seen that in previous seasons of The Expanse with respect to Mars rising in contrast to Earth. What is interesting about this season is that it turns out that it's not Mars that winds up supplanting Earth, but rather Marco and the Free Navy. Um, And in this sense, this is where I think the show actually deviates somewhat or it, it departs a little bit from what we know in terms of the history of international relations. Because what Marco does with the combination of the asteroid strikes on Earth, the seizure of the protomolecule and seizure of control at the ring gates, is he really does fundamentally shift the balance of power in the solar system. And it is in some ways unprecedented. The, the blending of historical analogies I would make is that this is Napoleon seizing power in revolutionary France and then launching his own Pearl Harbor combined with <laughs> Hiroshima <laughs> combined with 9 11 Which is to say that this doesn't happen in international relations normally that, you know, an actor in a small undersized uh, state manages to become essentially the hegemon. But that's where we are at the end of this season.
0: Now, would an analogy on Earth be something like India or Pakistan doing like a total nuclear strike?
1: I think it would be, but it would be it would be India launching, let's say, or it would be Pakistan you know, let's say a coup in Pakistan launching uh, a successful nuclear strike of India, but also neutralizing China in the process. And sta- I mean that, that the extent to which, um, and partly this is based on information we don't know, like which is what is the Martian government's response to all this, um, and the degree to which Earth is really you know debilitated or not. But there is no denying that the, the, at the end of this season. Marco is the hege- hegemonic actor in the solar system, which was not where mm-hmm. he started. Um, and indeed, the fact that he managed to pull that off is is genuinely extraordinary.
0: I remember in reading the books, the fact that he was successful in his strike on Earth was a surprise. Yeah, Like, you know, it, it, they went there, as people say sometimes. And, you know, that's how good the books are. Since I knew it was coming... Uh, from the books, I actually want to ask you, Dan, though, did you suspect that he would be successful in this strike, that they would actually destroy the Earth? It doesn't happen a lot in science fiction. No, I think I mean, we, have, be... we have we ap- have ap- ap- apocalyptic events, yeah. but I don't think you see very much a enemy of Earth just destroying it.
1: What I thought was it w- was that it would be sort of a 9-11 style event. And by that, I mean the attack would succeed. But the attack would not be so devastating that, you know, we're essentially talking about the end of the Earth eventually. And I think, by the way, the show is yet to be explicit on that point. I mean, you've read the books and so you probably know where this is going. And and this season made it clear that Earth is not a great place right now. But I think at some point they're going to have to be explicit to say, well, how much time does Earth have left or what is going to happen on Mm -hmm. Earth? Um, And it's not clear on that. So, yeah, I was legitimately shocked. The first asteroid striking didn't shock me. It was that you then see, like, truly Earth utterly, you know, deca- the leadership decapitated. It winds up being um, a military success. And so in that sense, yeah, I was legitimately shocked. And indeed, I'm still resistant to the idea that Earth can be, you know, completely disappear. Because maybe, I don't know, I'm a resident of this planet and I don't want it to go away. One last point on this, which is this... I'm still not sure Marco's plan of like a post-Earth solar system is viable. I mean, I, I keep coming back to that one conversation where Marco says, yes, there will be some lean years, which might be the understatement of, of the, the century in terms of how this is going to go.
0: Yeah, that whole—we talked about it in the episode where it's mentioned that, you know, uh, Ganymede is the breadbasket of of the belt, Um, but Earth is also the place, the only place you can get the kinds of, you know, plants and animals, I guess, that have the micronutrients that human needs. Yeah, Um, I mean, it does seem like a literally fatal flaw in his plan, so— but I know that there's even more IR the, to discuss.
1: The only other yeah. thing I would say is that, again, the, the thing that strikes me of the echoes to, and I've talked about this at various points in this podcast, is the, the Peloponnesian War. Um, because this has now become a conflict that is is truly totalizing in a way that the Peloponnesian War was, which was not how people thought at the start of that war. They, they thought it would just be sort of a lark. But, you know, you're seeing it in the form of just genuine hatred now among the different actors. It's a collection of different city-states where there are alliances that are formed and are not. Each actor is riven by their own internal factions. And the other thing is that war winds up consuming the character of everyone. The Peloponnesian War in Thucydides' history is a genuine tragedy because there are actors with plenty of promise, and in the end, they are all brought low, not necessarily because of mistakes, but because of war itself. Um, And that is how I'm beginning to think watching this show.
0: And I will just jump in for people that may not be total IR heads. When Dan says actors and character, he is not referring to actors on a stage. True. He is referring to international actors. Yes. So if that confused you for a moment, just rewind and, and listen to it, knowing that that is the case. Um, and, and I just wanted to add that the show is very clearly and consciously engaging with ancient history. Yes. Right. Like, there have been multiple references to classical generals and battles and whatnot. A, a season ago, I think we saw Arjun lecturing on the Peloponnesian War. That's I right. I be mistaken. Yes, I think that's correct. I can't remember. He now. was lecturing on a war from ancient our, history. It was ancient. Know, from, it was an ancient. From ancient history. Yeah. Right, and so we have also um, Suaviter quoting Xerxes, mm-hmm. and we have the sh- the episode called Gaugamela, mm-hmm. which is a reference to a battle in which uh, Alexander the Great defeated Darius the mm-hmm. Third, and um, oh, and Laconia and Laconia, which is another course.
1: name for Sparta. So yeah, that they're. they're you know, but, and to be fair, this is not the first show to do this. Like, if you look at like Star Trek: Next Generation, for example, there are a lot of like alien species in that show that essentially, you know, if you read the you start to recognize them. But, but the Expanse is doing that in a much more sophisticated way, I guess.
0: And I would say that the reason that any show does that, if it's doing it consciously, is to point out that humans uh, don't fundamentally change very much, uh <laughs> that we are a warlike species. Yeah. Uh and that and that war is against our self-interest. That even though we are creatures that enjoy conflict, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, that but that we are we have instincts uh, towards war, a warlike nature, it never winds up benefiting anyone really.
1: Well this gets tricky. Um uh, <laughs> I would phrase it as slightly different. You're
0: going to look at the upside of war, Dan. Well, I guess the way
1: one of the one of the best books in you know international relations is a book by a former colleague of mine named John Mearsheimer, and it's called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And I think much like the history of the Peloponnesian War, one of the things that international relations is very often uh, thought of is in the form of a tragic, you know, it, it, it's tragedy. And the reason it's tragedy is because, as you say, war rarely actually serves people's interests, but it occasionally does. And there are reasons why you occasionally launch wars. And the tragedy of this is that it's preventable and yet it happens anyway. And one of the the arguments in terms of international relations is that, yes, in theory, and, and I, I'll be honest, one of the reasons I started getting interested in international relations was actually from a book that uh, the, the political humorist P.J. Rourke once wrote called Holidays in Hell, which was a collection of his old Rolling Stone stories that he wrote back in the 80s. And I remember reading this for the first time being struck by it. He wrote in his, his introduction the fact that, like, in theory, if everyone wanted to, they could put down their weapons and there would actually be cooperation and, and you know, harmony of, of interest. And yet that doesn't happen. And that's interesting in a way that natural disasters aren't necessarily interesting. And that really stuck with me. And I was like, he's right. That is really interesting that... In theory, people don't have to go to war, as you say. They don't necessarily have to do these things, but they wind up doing so anyway. I think one of the reasons I wound up deciding to study international relations was the question of why that's the case. Why does why does cooperation break down?
0: Well, it's either human nature or capitalism. I mean, I feel like those are the options. Uh- <laughs> I don't think it's quite
1: I, I'm sorry you can play capitalism for a lot of things yeah. I don't, I'm not going to go there but like but it is human nature and it is it is the nature of anarchy it's the fact that there is no central legitimate authority and there probably never will be and this is this inevitably for humans in humans yes that there will never okay. be a, there will never be a single word world government or that is unlikely and because of that well
0: except in the future of the expanse there is a single world government but it's the problem is there are other worlds, right? So
1: the, basically, <laughs> the reason I like the Expanse in terms of international relations is the if, if most of international relations takes Earth as the unit of it, you know, study, the Expanse basically says, okay, let's just make it the solar system, in which mm-hmm. now you have a single Earth, you have a single Mars, you have the belt, and you know, and so forth. But it's still there's anarchy in the system, and so that's why it's worth. Uh, and anarchy, to be clear, for for those who are interested in international relations, anarchy does not necessarily mean chaos. Anarchy just means the absence of a central authority, and that's what The Expanse is about.
0: All right, Dan, we've covered so much, but allow us just a little more time, listener, to talk about the big themes in this season. Dan, would you like to start?
1: I would, but I, I'm not going to say much about it because I think um, we actually both arrived at the same theme, which is it. it the thing that struck me is that this, was about, this season was about constructed and deconstructed families. You know, the entire season is about the crew of the Rossi, in particular Alex and and Naomi and and Amos, going back to their roots, um, in some cases biological family, in other cases their upbringing, and wrestling with who they are and who they were and what does this mean. And it's not surprising that it ends with the Rossi crew, minus Alex, you know, reunited and recognizing that those are the bonds that to them are, are far more important than where they necessarily came from. And we also see this to some extent with Drummer and others. But that doesn't mean that, that, by the way, the families that you, you know, are biologically associated with her meaningless and i think that was what avisarala arc showed to me that the the sense of regret and genuine sadness she has at the loss of arjun indeed this wasn't a low key acting moment for for shorag dashlu it was a high uh key acting moment but the the scene where she realizes she's going to join the cabinet but she also has to cope with arjun's loss i thought was magnificent frankly
0: mm-hmm. and just probably because I've had more therapy than you, Uh, I would refer to the thing that you described as families of choice versus families of origin. Mm -hmm. And it is an eternal theme, um, both probably in literature, but definitely in the expanse. Um, And Amos is the avatar of, of this arc. He's not the most important character in the show, but he is the character in which we see that um, dilemma, you know, played out again and again and again, like can I disagree with you a
1: little what? bit on that? I, I, okay. I, I think you're right that Amos, I mean, I, I, this is not to diminish Amos, but I actually think in this season it was Naomi that winds up being the central. Mm. Amos is an orphan, you know, and, and so even his family right. in Baltimore was somewhat constructed and and then he creates a new one when he joins the mm. Rossi. With Naomi, Naomi leaves her biological family. She is in an intact family with Marco and Philip you know, she's in love, and then she's horrified by, by the role that she plays in the destruction of the Augustine Gamera, I think it's what it's called, and leaves, and decides that she has no choice but to leave, and then tries to, to build a bond with Philip, but that clearly doesn't work. So I, it, for me, it was Naomi more than Amos.
0: You know what? I will concede that in this season. I think it has been Amos, but definitely— um Naomi, especially for her, you're right, it is a literal like blood bond, right? It's DNA bond yeah. versus a, a bond of choice. That being the overarching theme, I think there's kind of an interesting sub theme to that, which is what it looks like when we make decisions about which family to honor, about which family you're going to prioritize. Mm-hmm. Because in the world of The Expanse, it tends to be the family of choice. Yes, that gets prioritized yes. and what looks like a great sacrifice. If you think in terms of the family of choice, if you look at it from the point of view of the family of origin, it looks incredibly selfish. Yes. And and this is dr- dramatized uh, by Naomi uh, when she does her no space suit. <laughs> right. <laughs> spacewalk. Yes. Um, also when drummer makes her decision, basically between two families of choice, but you know, the rest of her crew sees her as acting selfishly. Whereas if you're on the other side of that, of course, it looks incredibly selfless Mm -hmm. because she does risk, you know, she's risking a lot by choosing to part from Marco. So I think that's a, that's a sort of interesting choice. And also, Oh, and of course, um, Amos also, we see actions that could be considered cruel or could be considered just what you have to do to protect your family. And Amos clearly struggles with that, so which is why he chooses, you know, why he chooses other people to follow. But anyway, I really loved that. Also, the other place you see that is in what might be kind of the the grain of sand in my craw for this season, which is when Holden is with Naomi and she asks about his family, and she's like, oh, and he's like, oh yeah, Vasarela saved them, no big deal. which just sounds a little too easy. I feel like also that is an example of, you know, what it looks like when we prioritize one family over another in this case. Yeah. Like, there is a lot of people she could have saved, right?
1: Again, I, I, I mean, I, you
0: you phrased it as like, that's what she does in sort of IR terms. This is, like, or, that's her. This is
1: patronage yeah. politics is the way I would put it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think, let me put this I respect the fact that it's a sand in your craw. I, I admire her for why she did that. But um, we should move on.
0: Yes, we shall move on. Uh, Next, we are going to travel through the debris field, which Dan seems unable to remember that that's what we call this section, but it is the debris field where we discuss the little bits and bobs uh, that we weren't um, able to cover elsewhere. Dan, please.
1: So a few things. First of all, I I really just want to give credit to, uh, we've talked about this throughout this episode, the, the... minor sort of supporting actors who have mini arcs during the season. I think they did a particularly good job uh, with that, with the Belter characters uh, this year. But in particular, I would say Anna Hopkins-Monica, Bahia Watson-Sakai, Brent Sexton, who played Sin, and Olanuke Adeli who played Corral. And I apologize profusely if I mispronounced any of those actors' names. But I think that in particular, Sin and Corral were fully formed characters who had some really good moments and again, Corral in particular, much like Marco was a compelling villain um and I, I mean that in the the, the nicest way. Uh, Anna, do you want to have one and then we'll we'll back go back and
0: forth um, sure this is in a way minor, but it's something I, I feel like I must mention which it goes back a little bit to the treatment of polyamory, which is and also rate I guess, connects to the discussion we had about how the show engages and doesn't engage with race, mm-hmm. which is there is very little engagement with sexuality or gender um, and what might be a spectrum of those things. Because we're seeing right now in our culture, American, Northern, Western culture, a growing movement to to shape our culture in a way that it is more accepting of people who identify along spectrums. Mm. Those people have always existed. And other cultures have recognized that. In our culture, we tended to just make it a very binary thing. Even when we talk about homosexuality or heterosexuality, that's considered pretty binary. So I feel like in this 300 years from now future, there would be many more choices one could make. I shouldn't call it a choice. There would be many more ways that one could identify. Hmm. And we don't see that and that's fine and it's fine you know like you can't do everything um but missed opportunity i think dan your turn
1: so i feel like in some ways related to this there were elements of this season where and we talked about this throughout this this podcast there are parts of the story that weren't told which is anderson dawes gets referenced a fair amount but you know we don't see him, and, and maybe that's because Jared Harris is unavailable, but, or for whatever reasons, but the point is, I kind of want to know what the hell the OPA is doing during all of this, and indeed, we know more about this based on speculation from Earth than anything else. I really want to know who the hell is running Mars at this point, and what their response to all of this is, and I want to know how much life Earth has left. Again, as you you hinted, Anna, that, that this is really the end of Earth as we know it. I I need the show to be explicit about that, or at least to, you know, there there needs to be a little bit more exposition on that front.
0: And I don't have a lot else. We got to the things I thought I might talk about here in the rest of the show. Um, I feel like we do have to give a shout out to um, Holden's lacrosse
1: uniform. Are you hoping it's the last we've seen of it?
0: I hope it's the last we've seen of it. Uh, And also, I want to put a plea out. I guess they're already taping season six, but I'd love to see Fred Johnson's funeral. I think that would be... It would actually be informative <laughs> in a way. It, it could inform the plot. And I'm serious. It could inform, yeah, that's the, true. That inform is the plot in a very serious way because it would show us how Belters, the different ways they might be reacting um, to his death.
1: No, I agree. So. And the, the only thing I would add is that, you know, as we will hopefully see season six at the end of this year, it seems like there's going to be a lot they have to, to <laughs> wrap up because it's going to be the last season, as I understand it, that's been settled. Um, and I assume they're shooting it that way. And my only thing is that if this show ends with Krishnava Sarala going all Danny Targaryen on everyone, I am not going to be happy.
0: <laughs> yes, I, I don't think the show will take the easy way. I don't. I don't think, I, I don't think it, it'll do a Game of Thrones on us. I'm I'm pretty pretty sure they've they've done so much so well. You know, for all the you know little bits that we we quibble with. And let's just say, like, we're looking forward to it. We have reached the end of this season, Mm -hmm. which means we're going to be moving on to non-expanse intellectual property. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope you, dear listeners, join us. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, I feel like I've been incredibly lucky to do the show, Dan, uh, with you and and to have people listening. Mm -hmm. I want to thank the people that made this possible, Karen Quale, Liam McMahon, and Cher Martinetti, who gave us moral and technical support. These have been objectively shitty times to live through, and doing this show has been a respite from that. And we only can do it because you listen. Uh, I want to thank the 88 patrons we have and give a reminder that when we have 100 patrons, we're going to do a special patrons only episode on any topic that patrons vote on. Although I think we're going to request it not be a TV series because that's that's really hard. If you were curious about what we have decided to do, uh, we posted the schedule on the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. Next up is Ender's Game. I feel like that's kind of an obvious one in terms of IR, Dan, right? Like that.
1: There's a lot of IR yeah. in Ender's Game. Uh, there's, yeah. there's a, and and yeah. also there's a lot that proved to be very prescient about uh, Ender's Game that we will talk about.
0: <laughs> right. And after that, we're doing Alien, which Dan picked. Um, and I, I confess I have not seen it as an IR
1: movie. So I will grant you that the IR in Alien is somewhat subtle, and we will, we will talk about it a little bit. But the reason I I chose Alien was that it struck me as a natural segue from the world of The Expanse to the wider world of science fiction. Ty Frank, who is one of the uh, co-authors of The Expanse book series, as well as one of the co-creators of the show, uh, has explicitly acknowledged the the debt that The Expanse series pays to that movie. It is a a classic. I would also add uh, my thanks to Anna for bringing me along on this journey. As she has said, this has been during the taping of this Space the Nation series. Uh, how would I put this? A lot of shit has gone down, and this has been a welcome diversion in a whole variety of ways, and uh, hopefully will continue to be so. So if you are a patron, uh, we'll be doing an AMA on Patreon on March 6th at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central. In preparation for that, I will be posting a syllabus of all of the academic IR stuff that I have referenced this season. I promise I will do that, and indeed it will be up uh, by the time you actually hear this episode. <laughs>
0: Good, because that is something I've been nagging Dan about, because it is something I have heard from listeners. Our listeners are like us, Dan. They are deep, deep nerds. I am, I am glad to have found this tribe of nerds. I belong to other nerd tribes, but this, is, this might be one of the nerdiest. So, everyone, you seem like the type of person who does homework. Read up if you want to. You don't have to. And until then, Dan
1: keep this channel open for more.